Uh, if you've been uh, with us the last few weeks, then you know that we are talking about the gospel and politics and how they interact. And I've been saying that the gospel is bigger than, greater than politics, which enables us to be a community united, even when we have people holding uh, to different political loyalties. Now, last sermon in particular, I emphasized that we all will disagree uh, on how to vote on lots of things and that that's okay. But that doesn't feel like unity all the time, does it? In the first sermon, we saw that Christians are citizens of heaven and waiting for Jesus to bring heaven to earth. But that's sometime in the future. Next hour, tomorrow, next year, next millennium. We're not sure. But if we're, we're, if we're all over the map politically now, what can unite us right now? What can we all get behind and co-labor for? Well, let me read to you Jesus' final words to his disciples after his resurrection, before departing for heaven, from Matthew chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and uh, we are grateful that you promise uh, to accompany it with your spirit. Uh, So help us to receive and believe, and Holy Spirit, please work in our hearts that this word might be applied to us and bear fruit in our lives and in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, speaking with a a new couple here at Grace South Bay the other day, and they told me that in their last uh, PCA church, in our denomination, not in California though, uh, their pastor told them at that church that after the 2016 election, a third of the church left. They just stopped coming. Either they found a different church or they just stopped attending church altogether. And I've heard anecdotes like this before about the 2016 election. And I've read some research that actually confirms it. Now, we can guess what happened. President Trump won the election. The majority of the congregation seemed to be pro-Trump or at least pleased with the election. A minority of the congregation was anti-Trump and distraught. And they felt like they couldn't remain a part of that church. Now, probably both sides were over-identifying with a preferred political narrative that gave little room for someone on the other side. Now, again, maybe in this particular church it, it was different, but things like this happened in churches in 2016 and will likely happen again this year. Now, this story is sad to me and frustrates me because it sounds like a failure of the church and its leadership to keep the main thing the main thing. I can stand up here over and over again and say till I'm blue in the face that politics aren't everything. But then what is? What is everything? What should we be truly united around right now? Well, we see Jesus clearly describe it here in this passage the individual Christian, and the local church's mission priority 
is making disciples. If that is taught and demonstrated, then political differences within the church and political chaos without can be tolerated, maybe even learned from. Now that happens when everyone is putting more resources into pulling in the same direction, which is making disciples, both near and far. Now this doesn't mean, therefore, that politics can be ignored. Like I said last week, it is on the test. But our political actions and loyalties must conform to the greater priority of making disciples. And what we'll see is that that can make us hopeful. Because right now we can be united and focused on something greater than politics, namely making disciples. We can be hopeful, even as we engage in what feels like messy and ugly world of politics. What makes the Christian engagement with politics hopeful is that Christians are looking beyond politics to the spread of the gospel. That's how we're going to look at a few passages here today uh, throughout the New Testament. We're going to see first that Christians can be hopeful because of the priority of gospel proclamation. So looking at this Matthew passage here, this is the task that Jesus leaves his church. Spread the gospel throughout all the nations to make many disciples. And the Greek word here for make disciples, that is the active finite verb in the passage. It is the dominant theme. Grammatically, Jesus says something like, as you're going, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them, etc., etc." The author, Luke, records Jesus saying something very similar. To mash up passages from Luke and Acts, Jesus says that the resurrection and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations and that his disciples will be his witnesses to this, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, finally to the ends of the earth. I'm calling this then the priority of gospel proclamation. Ultimately, we want to win and mature disciples, but we are not in charge of who receives and believes the gospel. God gives the growth. So all we can do is faithfully proclaim the gospel in word and deed and continue evaluating if that's bearing fruit, if disciples are being made, and then adjust our proclamation as necessary. Now, Jesus says this in a memorable way in this passage. It doesn't necessarily come out in the English translation. He uses four alls. He says, all authority has been entrusted to him the authority in heaven and on earth. That's all authority that could possibly exist. Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them all Jesus' commands. And then he says, I am with you all the days. That's how we translate always, all the days. Jesus has all the authority and is with us all the days in order to do what? To make disciples of all nations, teaching them all he's commanded. This is the mission And this is such good news. Jesus gives us a mission we can handle, right? Because he is all-powerful and with us all the days, we can do what he's asking us to do. Sometimes, uh, as a parent, when, when you ask a child to do something, the child is resistant for a while, right? There's this back and forth until finally the child says, well, will you do it with me? Will you help me? Will you go with me? Of course, And that then gives them the sense of confidence and security they need to go forward. That's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. This is what we can be sure Jesus is doing through us in history right now. 
We can be hopeful today knowing that our role is to make disciples and Jesus is with us in that currently. Does he want us to lower taxes? Does he want us to raise the minimum wage? Does he want us to engage Iran or freeze them out? I don't know. I know he is with us to help us proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Therefore, we can give ourselves fully to that mission with hope because he's called us to it. And you can actually see how our church's mission statement folds into this, right? We want to gather people together, baptize whoever needs it, teach them all Jesus has commanded, and then send them out to go and make disciples and gather more people. That's what we're about. I gave this example a few days ago on our podcast, our sermon Q&A podcast. It's the, the URL should be here. Yep, page nine. Uh, if you have a question, the church's mission right now is like the mission of the airborne units that were dropped in Normandy hours before the actual D-Day invasion, the night of June 5th, June 6th, 1944. We're like the 82nd or 101st airborne divisions. We are on enemy soil, and our job is to prepare for the liberators. We alert the resistance. We fight the enemy. We let people know who need to know the allies are coming. Jesus' return from heaven is as sure as the German defender looking out from his bunker, and he sees an armada of a thousand ships coming his way. Liberation is coming. We are the advanced units. And our job is to announce that and to get people prepared for heaven. Notice how Jesus says this. He doesn't say, go and make a nation of disciples. No. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. This is an international, supranational mission. The Old Testament was the story of Israel, God building one nation for all nations. That work culminated in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Now God sends his people to all nations, bearing the good news of Jesus. Nations, therefore, will come and go, rise and fall. And a Christian's job is to get to all of them as soon as possible, declaring the gospel, making as many disciples as possible. Fundamentally, in Jesus' telling of history, the work of the church is more important than the work of the state, which is why totalitarian states hate the church. Christians are called to be more about church building than nation building. So the church's mission is not to make your life comfortable and feel good about yourself. It's not to help you through your first world problems in Silicon Valley. Its mission is not social justice. It's not taking back America. It's not redeeming culture. It's not fighting Hollywood or the homosexual agenda. It's not huddling together and waiting for the rapture. Its mission is making disciples by faithfully proclaiming the gospel. So like I said last week, be helpful. With the wisdom and spirit God gives you, use the political power you have to promote the good, prevent the bad, and protect the weak. But don't be satisfied with that. Be hopeful. Recognize Jesus' mission takes us further than that. As a church, together, we get to proclaim the gospel with the hope that many will believe. So do not hear me say, All that matters is evangelism, and so you can therefore tune out of politics. That's not what I'm saying, because there is very much an intersection of politics and gospel proclamation. 
And that's the second point, the politics of gospel proclamation. This brings us to our second passage from Paul's first letter to Timothy, starting in chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is an incredibly rich passage. We're not going to be able to dig into it completely. But here today we see that the church's job is to intercede in prayer on behalf of everyone, including all those in political authority. Now, there's lots of good reasons for this, but Paul gives the specific reason here in verses two through four. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul wants the governing authorities to not make war on the church. He wants the church to be able to do its work, testify to Jesus without hindrance from the political authorities. Why? Because God desires all men to be saved. The church needs to be free to do its work. And what is its work? Proclaim the gospel so that everyone can hear and respond. The book of Acts is filled with various local authorities wrestling with how to respond to Christians and their proclamation of the gospel. Their position matters very much. So Christians should pray for their leaders, for their salvation and for them to do their jobs well, but also that they might not be hostile to the church, that they might leave the church alone to do its work. Now, in the first century, this is all Christians could do, pray for their governing authorities. Christians today in the United States still should do that, but they can do more. Because like we said last week, all citizens bear the sword in this kind of democracy in which we live. Citizens have the ability to vote and influence leaders and policies. So there is an additional call to Christian citizenship now in our country. With their political power, Christians are to promote the good, prevent the bad, protect the weak, but also enable free gospel proclamation. Christians are to use their political power to see that the government leaves the church alone to do its work, to see that the government doesn't get in in the way of the gospel proclamation. If Christians without any power in the first century were supposed to pray for this, certainly Christians in the 21st century with more power are supposed to use it for this. Now, of course, Christians will differ on exactly what laws and policies do best to leave the church alone and allow it free gospel proclamation? Should prayer be allowed in schools? Should prayer be mandated in schools like it was when my parents were children? What about religious displays on public property or Ten Commandments in courthouses? My personal opinion is that as I read history, uh, when the church is overly aligned and identified with the government, it seems to dilute or diminish effective gospel proclamation. But when a government becomes very hostile to the church, that also can restrict gospel proclamation and making disciples. So it seems like we want our society to be somewhere in between. And I think the First Amendment is intended to help us navigate that. 
But I think on the specifics, we are allowed to disagree. But the value that we can all agree on is the priority of gospel proclamation. That should be the lens through which we view these questions. The most important question isn't, what direction is our culture headed? The most important question is, will allowing this or not allowing that help or hurt gospel proclamation? That's the priority. That question, does this help or hinder hinder gospel proclamation? That should always be one of the primary questions Christians are trying to decide on any kind of political support and action. What does my vote and support for this or against that say about the gospel to the people who need to hear it? When Christians act in concert politically, they should be asking, how do our actions actually promote gospel proclamation? You can win the political fight, and it may be something very important, but then lose multiple channels for gospel proclamation because of it. Remember, political power is based in the power of the sword. When a group wins a political contest, they now can point the sword at someone or some group and get them to do something or not do something. The sword is necessary in our time to promote the good, prevent the bad, and protect the weak. But Christians must be careful how they use the sword. It has to be really important because it can be hard for someone to hear good news from you when you're pointing the sword at them, making them do something they don't want to do or keeping them from doing something they want to do. And the priority for the church, Jesus says, is making disciples, not perfecting government, not redeeming culture, not redistributing wealth. It's like my experience being a teacher at a Christian school. On the one hand, it's a school. right? You need to keep order, maintain a good learning environment. On the other hand, you want all students to come to love Jesus because it's a Christian school. It can be hard for students to hear the gospel of grace and total forgiveness when what is heard more often is, you will attend chapel, you will sit there quietly, you will honor the dress code, you will not use that kind of language, you will not dance, etc., etc., etc. It's hard enough to navigate that when you're a teacher and you see and you care for these kids day in and day out. It's much worse when there are two political constituencies that never speak to each other and are suspicious of each other. This is how Paul puts it, verses 3 through 6. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Everyone needs to hear that there is one mediator between God and man. The man who came and walked and taught among us, Jesus Christ, he didn't use the sword. He allowed the sword to be used against him so he could serve as a ransom for us all. Now, we've talked plenty of times before as to why everyone needs Jesus and only Jesus, but to put it briefly, his death and resurrection saves us from death. The way we are rescued through death is by trusting in him. No state, no government, no human organization can defeat death. The best any of these can do is simply delay it for a while. That means the gospel, the good news about Jesus defeating death, which we all need to believe, it's far more important than politics. And God wants all to be saved. Jesus' death is for everyone. Everyone is dying. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. 
So when Christians spend the majority of their energy trying to impose their will on others by the sword or protect their way of life by the sword, the good news about Jesus dying for others, including our enemies, does not sound credible. If Christians have the ability to promote the good, prevent the bad, and protect the weak, which we do, and we simply don't try to, we don't try to be helpful, then we're not proclaiming the gospel. That isn't love. But it also is not love to simply stop at promoting the good, preventing the bad, and protecting the weak. That's not enough. Everyone is still dying in their sin. Everyone needs the gospel. So Christians can be hopeful in their political engagement, meaning they are to be strategic and prayerful about using their political authority so that the gospel proclamation will not be hindered. Gospel proclamation is the priority. And sometimes the politics of it must be tended to. And sometimes simply proclaiming the gospel will have political implications, right? It will seem political. So that's my third point, the politicalness I know it's not a word, the politicalness of gospel proclamation, even when you're not trying to be political. Look at the final passage here, Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that the Christian life and the life of the church, it's a public life. Christians are to be salt and light. And if there's any confusion as to what that means, Jesus just goes ahead and says, do your good deeds before men. To very individualistic, modern Christians that have a very private morality, this command doesn't make much sense. Oftentimes, Christians try to be good by not doing certain things, not giving in to greed or lust or anger. And even many of the good things Christians are commanded to do, like fasting and praying and giving to the poor, they're supposed to be done privately. Jesus will say that in just a few verses. So what is he talking about? Remember last week, for both Paul and Peter, quote-unquote good in this context meant socially beneficial things. right? Paul and Peter both say that, that the government rewards or recognizes those who do good for the community. What Jesus is talking about are deeds that bring blessing upon others. Jesus is saying, do not make your Christianity simply private. If you are salt and light of the world, you will necessarily be about doing good things in public. Why? So that others might see it and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Doing this kind of good in the name of Jesus proclaims the gospel. Christians are ambassadors of heaven, and their job is to spread around the flavor of heaven. Give tastes of heaven so others will want more of it. This is what has always driven our vision for compassion. As a church, we've housed homeless individuals in the name of Jesus because in his coming kingdom, no one is unhoused. We've cared long-term in multifaceted ways for refugee families in the name of Jesus because in his coming kingdom, there are no vulnerable strangers. We've worked with foster families, young, scared moms and pregnant women in the name of Jesus because in his coming kingdom, there are no unwanted children and no unforgivable sins. We've spoken about the importance of racial reconciliation and peace between ethnic groups in the name of Jesus because in Jesus' coming kingdom, there are people worshiping together in unity from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is the heart behind our compassion initiatives. 
We want to promote the good, prevent the bad, and protect the weak. And we do that in the name of Jesus, voluntarily, without use of the sword. And others notice. Now, the things I just listed, they're generally supported and approved of by everyone in our culture right now. Sometimes doing good and giving taste of heaven do not please the authorities. We're culturally powerful. There's hundreds of examples of the church doing this throughout the ages. I'll just give two. Oh, from just a few years ago, one of my closest friends from seminary, he's from the South, he took up a pastorate in a very old Presbyterian church in a small southern town. It's the kind of town where old-timers uh, from the KKK still hang out together daily at a particular diner. Anyway, there was a magnetic high school, t- high school teacher that started coming to my buddy's church. That teacher brought some of their students. One was an African-American young man. Some of the members of my buddy's church helpfully told the young man other churches he might be more comfortable in. My buddy wouldn't have that. He made sure the young man stayed, took the membership class, got baptized, and he became a member. This was the first African-American member of this church since the Civil War. Now, that might not sound political, but it is in a small southern town, simply because of the priority of making disciples. On another note, I imagine in the future, some of our stances here at Grace South Bay might draw political heat. Myself and my co-pastor Stephen, we will not marry a Christian to a non-Christian. We will not marry people currently cohabitating and being sexually active. And we will not marry people of the same sex. Everyone is welcome to worship with us, everyone and anyone. But because heaven is about union with Jesus, our true bridegroom, Our unions here need to reflect that in substantial ways outlined in his word. Following Jesus is costly and sacrificial, but also beautiful and satisfying. And we want to proclaim and demonstrate that. And at some point, this will likely result in us losing our nonprofit status and protection as a church. Oh, well, I'm not afraid of that. Gospel proclamation, by definition, means teaching all that Jesus commands. You can't compromise part of the gospel in order to proclaim another part of it. The point is, doing good deeds, gospel proclamation is public, and because it is public, it will often have political overtones. But Christians can be hopeful about it, since Jesus promises to go with them as they proclaim the gospel in word and deed. Whether we're receiving approval or disapproval from the state and the culture, we can be hopeful because we know this is what Jesus is about, proclaiming the gospel and winning disciples. And when churches do that, it can actually change a nation, a culture, the world. Starting around the year 150, waves of plague started hitting the Roman Empire. Some experts think it was the first recorded smallpox outbreak. But the plague could decimate a city, taking out 50% of the population over a series of months. This was unheard of up to this point. The government didn't know what to do. Anyone with power or with wealth got as far away as possible whenever a plague would hit, except Christians. The Christians stayed and tended to the sick, both Christians and also non-Christians. Now, I've heard some preliminary reports uh, from China that similar things are happening right now. But for back then, for anyone paying attention, 
the difference between Caesar and Christ was obvious. And more of the people survived who were cared for by Christians. Because now we know that even minimal care, the care that ancients could give, would increase survival rates by 30%. You know what happens after 200 years of plagues and Christians taking care of the sick? Population's a lot more Christian. Because more of them survived and helped others survive. This is one of the key ingredients that transformed the Roman Empire. The sword couldn't do that. If you're a Christian here this morning, what are you passionate about? Where do your thoughts and energy drift to? Your political side winning? Being vindicated? The gospel can do so much more than that. We can't tune out or drop out of the political arena, but as citizens of heaven, we can be so much more than simply partisan. We can hope in things that only Jesus can do, and we can engage hopefully right now because the gospel is greater than politics, and Jesus promises to go with us as we proclaim it. Let's pray. God, we are, again, grateful for your word, and we are grateful that you have... um, called us into mission, your mission, of bringing good news to the whole world and seeing thousands and millions of people saved and brought to new life in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to see that priority and help us to live that as we do good, as we love, as we uh, resist evil, um, as we go about our days. Help us to bring good news and the flavor and the taste of heaven everywhere we go. Fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.